Thanks for joining us today on the season finale of Innovation and the Digital Enterprise. We've got something a little different today. I founded a group about four years ago called the Chicago Innovation Roundtable. The purpose of the roundtable is to connect visionary leaders here in Chicago to learn, share, and empower each other to create greater growth through innovation. Each year, we host a summit and bring in various thought leaders to share their experiences, their insights, and their opinions on a variety of innovation topics. Today, I wanted to share with you the highlights from each thought leader's discussion. Without further ado, our first speaker up is Dick Burke, CEO of Envoy Global. Dick joined us to talk about immigration trends and how foreign talent is driving innovation in the U.S. economy. Here's some of the data insights he shared. The really strong thesis I have today is that immigration will continue to be a key driver for U.S. competitiveness, especially in the immigration sector. And there's all sorts of ways, you know, we can measure this. This compares immigrants as a share of the U.S. population, which is presently about a little under 14 percent, with the growth of innovation as measured by patent issuances. So in 1975, about one out of every 12 patents, as you can see, were issued to immigrants, uh, about 8 percent. By four years ago, it had grown almost quadrupled to 29%, and now it's north of 29%. So probably two and a half X the national population. And you can see in some fields like computers and communication, electronics, it's getting close to 40%. And that is not a coincidence. We know that the large majority of foreign nationals getting master's to advanced degrees, master's or PhD in uh, STEM fields, 60, 70, 80% are foreign born. And you see it reflected here. That slight dip in 15 and 16, we know has turned up into the right since then. So immigrants, 13, 14% of the population, two and a half X that in terms of patent issuances. Take another look at it in the Bay Area defined as San Francisco to San Jose, 1975, Chinese and Indians uh, had you know less than one half of 1%, one out of 220 patents. By 2017, it was one of eight. And we know that has only accelerated since 2017. Another one, you think, zoom out a bit, beyond the folks who actually receive the patent are the folks who create the businesses. We know in the, based on 2019's list from the Fortune 500, 45% of the Fortune 500, almost half, were founded by immigrants or their children. Uh, you know, unicorns are defined as private companies that obtain a billion dollar valuation from venture capital or growth equity or private equity. Half of them are founded by first generation immigrants. So think of that. Our country is first generation immigrant, 13, 14%. It is 4X that contribution to unicorns. Next up, we have Adam Canoos, CTO of Evive. He joined us to talk about organizing product development teams for success. Here's a few of the things he has learned over the past few years. The teams really were organized by skill set. So product managers was sort of a team in and of itself. And what the product managers were responsible for is, is kind of cranking out user stories. And then those user stories would get sent to technical lead. And that technical lead would then split them up by kind of layer within the platform. So we had a UI, UX team that was really really a set of front-end developers and UX designers. 
And then we had a group of backend engineers who were building services. And then we had uh, a group of people that kind of supported the infrastructure or the, the technology that was actually running the applications. There were some advantages. So our UI developers who were one or two years into their career loved it. So they were on a team with other UI developers. They had senior people on that team. They were able to build their skills really deeply in, in that area of expertise. And there were just people there to kind of help them on their day-to-day tasks. A lot of disadvantage with this type of model. Everything that we did required a lot of coordination. You can think about like just the timing of delivering an end-to-end feature. Uh, one team may be slightly ahead or behind of the other in trying to get predictability on when an end-to-end feature would be released to market was super difficult. We weren't really building full-stack engineers. So you know, it was great for really junior engineers trying to build depth in one area. But for those engineers who are looking to expand their skill set, we became, we started running into roadblocks where we either need to move people to different teams or we need to start doing knowledge sharing, which there's a pretty big cost to. And then the, you know, the, the worst kind of characteristic of a team like this is when issues would occur, we'd start getting into this not my problem type of issue or it's not my problem type of response. It's very hard to develop kind of that DevOps mentality when you're, when you're working in one layer of a multi-layered application. So Teams 2 and 3, this was kind of the how I reshaped my team at Narrative Science to focus slightly differently. And then this is how I started my teams at Evive. This was really organizing by product. So at Narrative Science, we had a platform and sort of signature product and then we were going to launch something kind of new to the market. At Evive, we have sort of one, I'd say, marquee product, and then five or six other standalone applications or products that we also take to market. So the idea here was we should organize all of our teams with a full stack team, meaning product manager, product analyst, tech lead, and developers, all by product to develop some depth in those products. So in most cases, we were co-located as well. In a couple of cases, we turned this into global teams where you'd have the team actually in both locations, really to kind of drive some interconnectivity and and team building cross-location. The things that worked really well is we delivered really fast. So for a given product, those teams were able to make autonomous decisions and drive that product forward very, very quickly. So this worked really, really well for launching something brand new to market and getting it there quickly so you could start to test market viability. It reduced the dependency mapping. So every team was kind of responsible end-to-end for requirements, user stories, uh, the technical design, how they delivered it, where they deployed it, supporting the infrastructure they deployed it on, and was able to operate, like I mentioned before, quickly and independently. Disadvantages? These really started to show up as we wanted to mature from kind of a set of independent products to more of a kind of platform kind of treatment. The first one was really on splitting teams globally. It became very difficult after a while to get people excited about the global hours. Just it has a tax to it and you can do it for a while and eventually started to wear on these teams. The Interesting thing that we didn't really think about until we started moving this and really at Evive, this this kind of reared its head, is when you have teams organized by product, you're sort of 
by default, investing the same amount of money in each of those products. So if you have six products, one product is your breadwinner performing better than another product, you want the ability to just slow down investment in the one maybe that's underperforming or slow down investment in the one that needs less forward development and shift that investment into other products. If you're organized by team and by product, that actually creates a team dynamic that you wouldn't normally have if you were doing this slightly differently. Technical reuse became a problem. So in some circumstances, we were re rebuilding the same type of functionality for five different times, which was creating some pretty bad technical sprawl across our products, specifically at Evive. And when we decided at Evive, what we really had was a platform that we should be launching products out of. There was a lot of modernization or re-architecture that needed to occur to kind of bring that sprawl back into a common set of services. So worked again, worked really well for new stuff, made it difficult then to transition later. What we have today at Evive is we took a step back and we started to look at patterns of things we were doing across our products and realized that we do some of the same things and we should really be thinking about Evive as a set of capabilities rather than a set of products. So we've moved into sort of this platform structure where we think about what we do and we organize teams around what we do. So just to give you an example, everything at Evive is based off of data ingestion of different types of data, which we use to build the member profile. So what can we know about an individual that will help us target them more effectively with messaging? Then we have our targeting engine where we take those characteristics and we build audiences. And then those audiences are uh, run through what we call a campaign engine where we bring in the content, the frequency, the uh, modality of how we want to reach that person and we drive that to the users. And then there's a set of UIs that sit on top that users can interact with. We decided that those capabilities, if we invest teams into each of those capabilities, we can advance those very quickly. And then eventually, potentially later product teams on top. And then that kind of pushes you in the direction of good uh, software design as well. So if you're going to have teams organized by capability, if you want to reduce the dependencies you could run into, it forces you into good contracting or an API design, which is where we're at today. So I probably hit a lot of these, but the advantages here, we are maximizing our tech reuse. Um, so we're not building the same thing multiple times. I mentioned the, the good system contracts. The kind of added advantage to that is if we sign partnerships where we want to expose externally some of those contracts to allow other companies to plug into our system, it kind of opens the door to that. And really why you would choose this is if, if your platform is what matters. And as our company has evolved, we've gone through products being the most important now to platform being the, the most important. Some of the downsides of this is it takes a while to get there. I know a number of you have probably been at bigger companies have probably been involved in application modernization projects that can last four or five years. I was certainly a part of a lot of those back in my consulting days. Dependencies matter a lot here. So it takes a while to remove your dependencies so these teams can operate independently. And then just finding technologists who can think in a more abstract way is what I've found to be pretty difficult. I think it's pretty easy to find software developers who can understand a set of product requirements and they can build that product out 
in that monolith, it's a lot harder to find people who can think about things in an, in an abstract API design type of way and think about a capability rather than, rather than a set of UI functionality. Our next speaker is through Shiva Kumar, CEO and co-founder of Cohesion. She joined us for a great discussion around the future of autonomous buildings. Here's a few of the highlights from her fireside chat. We started with this whole connected building and intelligent building experience. But what's happened, you know, within the last few years is that three things have kind of collided in over the last couple of years. One is that, you know, we had a global pandemic and, you know, building health has come to the forefront. So that's one of them. The second is that 40% of the problem are buildings, right? So commercial buildings are the first phase of the climate accord. Uh, the Paris Climate Accord. And so we are, you know, phase one of buildings have to do more to decarbonize their um, their real estate. And what they don't have is data to do so. So what they're struggling with, and then, sorry, add on one more layer, which is people are talking about this hybrid workforce and the, the reduction in space utilization for landlords, and now add on inflation for real estate where debt costs are going up. So you've got all four of these really large kind of uh, large macro factors that are coming at landlords that is forcing this industry to change. Never before did we really have this force. We've had financial crises before, but we've never had four of these kind of factors coming and hitting us at the same time. So one thing that you know we're hearing across the board is that this time it's going to stick. The digital transformation is real and it's here to stay from a real estate perspective, prop tech perspective, built environment perspective. And so when we think about, you know, when we think about like the sustainability factor, it's innate in what we have to do. And what we have to do is balance how to be a healthy building, how to be an engaging building so people still utilize space and also how to be a sustainable building. And so with that, you need technology and you need data. From our perspective, it's just about transparency. And we're really, we're doing a lot of time educating buildings and landlords and operators that transparency is the future, the the new worker, the millennial, the Gen Z worker is going to demand this. And the demand is coming from the end user, the tenants. And so if we really want to bring people back, it's a it's an educational piece. So we started kind of in this phased approach. You can't get to an autonomous building right away, right? There's steps to take. There's change management. There's both human change management, but there's also systems, you know, systems repositioning and connectivity. And so we started pre-2021 with the connectivity of buildings. How do we create the right scalable framework to connect the different systems within a building, but do it in a scalable and repeatable way? We can't, you know, every building has some unique, and I say unique in kind of air quotes because it's not all that unique if you have the right scalable infrastructure from a tech perspective to be able to say, okay, well, this building has this type of HVAC system and this type of access control system. And this, you know, the next building has something totally different. But if you have the right framework and architecture from a tech perspective, you could actually make that happen and be able to scale and repeat that, that connectivity, connectivity of the building system. So that was what was really important for us is how do we make sure that we could integrate the hardware and software in the right way and then make sure that that tenant experience is appropriate. So that was you know kind of the past. This year, what, what we've done is really pivoted. And I should say this year being the last 12 months to you know, healthy buildings were a real big, obvious play for us in that we already had the connectivity. We were always going to make our way to the autonomous building, self-driven, self-healing building itself. But we were focused on a few other things. We were going to look at demand-driven HVAC, so heating and cooling first. But we saw a real need for indoor air quality and demand-driven ventilation, which was all around the air you breathe. And so we pivoted 
to respond to one, a customer need. And we also had our, you know, the mechanical, uh, the firm that we spun out of, they were big on, let's make sure that, you know, we're responding to this market need. So we, we pivoted and we built out, you know, the first, the first um, optimization program in indoor air quality. Next up, we have Greg Zvitek, director of Spot Hero Labs. He joined us to talk about how embracing extreme ambiguity leads to innovation. Here are some of his thought-provoking ideas around leadership and culture. In the early stages of innovation, there's a lot of ambiguity and how do you create a culture for that? So the first thing that Patrick and I spent a lot of time talking about is that learning is the most important principle, not process, not anything else. It's learning. And how do you create a culture that forces that pizza box team to learn fast, faster than anyone? And really the first important part about it is you create a bottom-up mentality, meaning like it's not uncommon in the early stages when I work with new people, I'll put something up on a wall and I'll walk out the door and I'll just put a topic for the team to talk about. And then I'll literally walk out the door because the topic is for them to work out and solve. And then, then that way it's not the leader. That's the one that's, that's doing your job is set the objective, but in general, it's the team uh, the three other individuals that are in the room that are responsible for figuring out what we're going to do, what problem we want to solve. And then lastly, how they want to solve it. And really in the early stages, I intentionally create controlled chaos. So whenever someone asks me like, what should we do? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. What do you, what do you think? Or I'll pick on the quiet person in the room, most quiet person in the room and ask them to talk. And more importantly, I'll put them in a very difficult situation in an uncomfortable situation in the early stages. And you'll see by the third week how people just start talking and you don't really have to talk because they'll understand the problems way better than them. And then the last is uh, document as little as possible (laughs) in the early stages. And really why you don't want to document anything is because the conversation and the communication is more important than, you know, I've seen a lot of people try and write out, this is our perfect, perfect scenario and this and that. And it, and I can tell you the learning is going to prove all that wrong anyways. So you should just try and focus on the hypothesis and don't document anything as the leader and let people kind of pick up stuff and and document stuff whenever it makes sense. But don't spend time waiting for that. Like more important thing is to get out there and talk to people and come back and share and rather than spending time waiting for people to document. And and that changes as you get, you know, further into horizon two and, and so on and so forth. But in general, in the early stages, that's something that's really important. So number one is uh, people. I don't want anyone on my team that's an expert at anything. I only want people who are Swiss Army nice. What I have found in my career is if you try and take someone who's an expert at something, that actually hinders the ability for them to learn because they anchor on that level of expertise. But the people I do want are people who are master collaborators because then they can embrace that ambiguity between the other three members of the team and master learners. Those are the kind of the most important skills and being a generalist of being able to pick stuff up as we go, whatever language, whatever it is, enhances experimentation. And I also want the, like I talked about much, a lot about is the product focused teammates and who are looking for exponential growth. What we have found here at Spot Arrow is there are people who, who are feel kind of stuck. And, you know, once they get them into a labs teams, sometimes we have a hard time and then is um, putting them back in their boxes. They learn so much so fast and then they get them back into, you know, other areas. We, we then have challenges with that. 
And so it's an interesting, interesting dynamic. And really most importantly is I want people that are willing to do the dirty work. So like the guy, for example, the guy who wrote most of the code for opening our gates through Bluetooth, which we didn't get a chance to cover. He right now is up on a ladder rewiring uh, a Bluetooth sensor for, for us at the moment. So, you know, maybe the most valuable person on the team from an engineering standpoint is literally on a ladder right now. And everyone on, on the two teams is willing to do things that they would not do. And they know that their things don't, at the early stages don't scale, but they're just trying to do everything we can to eliminate most barriers. And then the other thing is uh, on the leadership side, the person that's the leader, I firmly believe since it's a pizza box team, you, the leader should just be willing to do the dirty work. I mean, it's not, it's not unusual for me to be in a parking garage three to four times a week at some point. And this is an actual picture of like after we hung our sensors for the Bluetooth for the first time, basically anyone that I ask to do something, I should be willing to do myself. And um, really my job at the end of the day is to set the objective, not the goal, set the objective, not the goal, and really break any ties as far as, far as any disagreements are concerned. Last but not least is Ari Kaplan. Ari is the Director of AI Evangelism and Strategy at Data Robot. He joined us to talk about the state of artificial intelligence and how it's reshaping the way organizations do business. Here are a few of the insights he shared. If you look at Fortune 500 companies, about a third are like legitimately applying AI in a meaningful way, yet two-thirds are not. So you know, everyone's kind of growing and learning at the same time. Um, so what is AI and machine learning? And th there's really three acronyms of AI. Artificial intelligence is, is what people generally refer to it. And that is what, what you see here. You can take information from the past and make better predictions, better segmentations to predict the future. There's now applied artificial intelligence, which is what, you know, you're a business. You want to predict sales better. You want to predict, are your customers going to churn more accurately? That's really applied artificial intelligence. And augmented intelligence is, is really like the practical aspect of it. You have humans making decisions. You know, you know the complexities. You know, somebody's hungry, they're going to buy Pringles more likely than they're not. Their kid got a cut on their knee you're more likely to spend more for a Band-Aid than not. You know, so th those are you know, human ideas, uh, but the artificial part can better understand the complexities of tons of types of data, more like human behavior. So augmented intelligence is that combination of like humans, augmented being assisted with computer-generated uh, insights that might be a bit too hard to do uh, or patterns that might be a little too subtle for humans to uh, take out. So big question is why, you know, what is AI, but why should I do it already over business intelligence? So, you know, one of the, the challenges is you know, I start talking to, to people about uh, making better predictions and you say, hey, you can predict uh, who's going to churn. You can predict your marketing strategy. You can predict who should I give a loan out to. And companies are like, you know what, we're already doing that. Um, so you have to understand that AI, yes, you are currently making predictions. They might be good. They might be great. They might be amazing. But artificial intelligence can take that to the next level. So you know, one example 
is, um, you know, you, you, we're, I'm working with Kroger, that big retailer, and they have 60 million uh, loyalty followers. And each of those loyalty followers have a somewhat unique uh, number of children, salary, their shopping experience, their journey of purchasing. Uh, if I were or Howard or anyone on the call were to try to figure out 60 million people, you, you, it would take you your lifetime many times over. So AI you know, can help figure out, Kroger actually prints multiple millions of catalogs sent customized to each individual household. So I may get one where certain coupons that I like are higher up, where recipes I might like, and Howard may get a, a different one with totally different articles and content. The civilizations have been through many revolutions, and we're in the middle of you know, what's called the intelligence revolution. And it, it's pretty phenomenal. It's going to be larger than any of the other revolutions possibly put together. So that wraps this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening and hearing from all of these wonderful people and, and their great thoughts and experiences. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.